Part two of Chapter four Physic and Physicians. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Part two of Chapter four Physic and Physicians in Equanimitas by Sir William Osler. So much for the general conception of the structure and functions of the body, in order and disorder, as conceived by Plato, were nothing more to be gleaned the thoughts on these questions of one of the greatest minds of what was intellectually the most brilliant period of the race, would be of interest, but scattered throughout his writings are innumerably little obiter dictal, which indicate a profound knowledge of that side of human nature which turns uppermost when the machinery is out of gear. There are, in addition, many charming analogies drawn from medicine and many acute suggestions, some of which have a modern flavour. The noble pilot and the wise physician, who, as Nestor remarks, is worth many another man, furnish some of the most striking illustrations of the dialogues. One of the most admirable definitions of the art of medicine I selected as a rubric with which to grace my textbook, and I said of medicine that this is an art which considers the constitution of the patient and has principles of action and reasons in each case. Or again, the comprehensive view taken in the statement. There is one science of medicine which is concerned with the inspection of health equally in all times, present, past, and future. Plato gives delicious account of the origin of the modern medicine, as contrasted with the art of the guild of Asclepius. Well, I said, and to require the help of medicine, not when a wound has to be cured, or on occasion of an epidemic, but just because by indolence and a habit of life, such as we have been describing, men fill themselves with waters and winds as if their bodies were a marsh compelling the ingenious sons of asclepius to find more names for diseases such as flatulence and catarrh is not this too a disgrace yes he said they do certainly give very strange and newfangled names to diseases Yes, I said, and I do not believe there were any such diseases in the days of Asclepius, and this I infer from the circumstance that the hero Eurypylus, after he had been wounded in Homer, drinks a posset of Pramnian wine, well besprinkled with barley meal and grated cheese, which are certainly inflammatory, and yet the sons of Asclepius, who were at the Trojan War, do not blame the damsel who gives him the drink or rebuke Patroclus, who is treating his case. Well, he said, this was surely an extraordinary drink to be given to a person in his condition. Not so extraordinary, I replied, if you bear in mind that in former days, as is commonly said, before the time of Herodicus, the guild of Asclepius did not practice our present system of medicine, which may be said to educate diseases. But Herodicus, being a trainer, and himself of a sickly constitution, 
by a combination of training and doctoring, found out a way of torturing first and chiefly himself, and secondly the rest of the world. How was that? he said. By the invention of lingering death, for he had a mortal disease which he perpetually tended, and as recovery was out of the question, he passed his entire life as a valetudinarian. He could do nothing but attend upon himself, and he was in constant torment whenever he departed in anything from his usual regimen, and so dying hard, by the help of science, he struggled on to old age, a rare reward of his skill. He goes on to say that Asclepius did not instruct his descendants in valetudinarian arts, because he knew that in well-ordered states, individuals with occupations had no time to be ill. If a carpenter falls sick, he asks the doctor for a rough and ready cure, an emetic, or a purge, or a cautery, or the knife. These are his remedies. Should any one prescribe for him a course of dietetics and tell him to swathe and swaddle his head and all that sort of thing, he says, he sees no good in a life spent in nursing his disease to the neglect of his customary employment, and therefore bidding good-bye to this sort of physician, he resumes his ordinary habits and either gets well and lives and does his business, or if his constitution fails, he dies and has no more trouble. He is more in earnest in another place, Gorgias, in an account of the relations of the arts of medicine and gymnastics. The soul and the body being two, have two arts corresponding to them. There is the art of politics attending on the soul, and another art attending on the body, of which I know no specific name, but which may be described as having two divisions, one of them gymnastic and the other medicine. And in politics there is a legislative part, which answers to gymnastic, as justice does to medicine, and the two parts run into one another, justice having to do with the same subject as legislation, and medicine with the same subject as gymnastic, but with a difference. Cookery stimulates the disguise of medicine, and pretends to know what food is the best for the body, and if the physician and the cook had to enter into a competition in which children were the judges, or men who had no more sense than children, as to which of them best understands the goodness or badness of food, the physician would be starved to death. And later in the same dialogue, Socrates claims to be the only true politician of his time who speaks, not with any view of pleasing, but for the good of the state, and is unwilling to practice the graces of rhetoric, and so would make a bad figure in a court of justice. He says, I shall be tried just as a physician would be tried in a court of little boys at the indictment of the cook. What would he reply under such circumstances, if some one were to accuse him, saying, Oh, my boys, many evil things has this man done to you. He is the death of you, especially of the younger ones among you. 
cutting and burning and starving and suffocating you until you know not what to do he gives you the bitterest potions and compels you to hunger and fast how unlikely the variety of meats and sweets on which i feasted for you what do you suppose that the physician would be able to reply when he found himself in such a predicament if he told the truth he could only say all these evil things my boys i did for your health and then would there not just be a clamour among a jury like that how they would cry out the principle of continuity of uniformity so striking in ancient physics was transferred to the body which like the world was conceived as a whole several striking passages illustrative of this are to be found thus to the question of socrates do you think that you can know the nature of the soul intelligently without knowing the nature of the whole phaedrus replies hippocrates the asclepiad says that the nature even of the body can only be understood as a whole the importance of treating the whole and not the part is insisted upon in the case of a patient who comes to them with bad eyes the saying is that they cannot cure his eyes by themselves but that if his eyes are to be cured his head must be treated and then again they say that to think of curing the head alone and not the rest of the body also is the height of folly Charmides had been complaining of a headache, and Critias had asked Socrates to make believe that he could cure him of it. He said that he had a charm, which he had learnt, when serving with the army, of one of the physicians of the Thracian king, Zamolxis. The physician had told Socrates that the cure of the part should not be attempted without treatment of the whole and also that no attempt should be made to cure the body without the soul and therefore if the head and body are to be well you must begin by curing the soul that is the first thing and he who taught me the cure and the charm added a special direction let no one he said persuade you to cure the head until he has first given you his soul to be cured for this he said is the great error of our day in the treatment of the human body that physicians separate the soul from the body the charms to which he referred were fair words by which temperance was implanted in the soul though a contemporary hippocrates is only once again referred to in the dialogues where the young hippocrates son of apollodorus who has come to Protagoras, that almighty wise man, as Socrates terms him in another place, to learn the science and knowledge of human life, is asked by Socrates, If you were going to Hippocrates of Cos, the Asclepiad, and were about to give him your money, and someone had said to you, You are paying money to your namesake, Hippocrates,
oh hippocrates tell me what is he that you give him money how would you have answered i should say he replied that i gave money to him as a physician and what will he make of you a physician he said a paragraph which would indicate that hippocrates was in the habit of taking pupils and teaching them the art of medicine and in the euthydemus with reference to the education of physicians socrates says that he would send such to those who profess the art and to those who demand payment for teaching the art and profess to teach it to anyone who will come and learn we get a glimpse of the method of diagnosis derived doubtless from personal observation possibly of the great hippocrates himself whose critical knowledge of pulmonary complaints we daily recognize in the use of his name in association with the clubbed fingers of phthisis and with the succussion splash of pneumothorax suppose someone who is inquiring into the health or some other bodily quality of another he looks at his face and at the tips of his fingers and then he says uncover your chest and back to me that i may have a better view and then socrates says to protagoras uncover your mind to me reveal your opinion etc one of the most celebrated medical passages is that in which socrates professes the art of a midwife practicing on the souls of men when they are in labor and diagnosing their condition whether pregnant with the truth or with some darling folly the entire section though long must be quoted socrates is in one of his little difficulties and wishes to know of the young theatetus who has been presented to him as a paragon of learning and whose progress in the path of knowledge has been sure and smooth flowing on silently like a river of oil what is knowledge theatetus is soon entangled and cannot shake off a feeling of anxiety theatetus i can assure you socrates that i have tried very often when the report of questions asked by you was brought to me but i can neither persuade myself that i have any answer to give nor hear of any one who answers as you would have him and i cannot shake off a figgling of anxiety socrates these are the pangs of labor my dear theatetus you have something within you which you are bringing to the birth theatetus i do not know socrates i only say what i feel socrates and did you never hear simpleton that i am the son of a midwife brave and burly whose name was Feneret? theatetus yes i have socrates and that i myself practice midwifery theatetus no never socrates let me tell you that i do though my friend but you must not reveal the secret as the world in general have not found me out 
and therefore they only say of me that I am the strangest of mortals, and drive men to their wit's end. Did you ever hear that too? Thetatus, yes. Socrates, shall I tell you the reason? Thetatus, by all means. Socrates, bear in mind the whole business of the midwives, and then you will see my meaning better. No woman, as you are probably aware, who is still able to conceive and bear, attends other women, but only those who are past bearing. Thetatus, yes, I know. Socrates, the reason of this is said to be that Artemis, the goddess of childbirth, is not a mother, and she honours those who are like herself, but she could not allow the barren to be midwives, because human nature cannot know the mystery of an art without experience, and therefore she assigned this office to those who are too old to bear. Thetatus, I dare say. Socrates, and I dare say too, or rather, I am absolutely certain that the midwives know better than others who is pregnant and who is not. Thetatus, very true. Socrates, and by the use of potions and incantations, they are able to arouse the pangs and to soothe them at will. They can make those bear who have a difficulty in bearing, and if they think fit, they can smother the embryo in the womb. Thetatus, they can. Socrates, did you ever remark that they are also most cunning matchmakers, and have a thorough knowledge of what unions are likely to produce a brave brood? Thetatus, no, never. Socrates, then let me tell you that this is their greatest pride, more than cutting the umbilical cord. And if you reflect, you will see that the same art which cultivates and gathers in the fruits of the earth will be most likely to know in what soils the several plants or seeds should be deposited. Thetatus, yes, the same art. Socrates, and do you suppose that with women the case is otherwise? Thetatus, I should think not. Socrates, certainly not, but midwives are respectable women, and have a character to lose, and they avoid this department of their profession, because they are afraid of being called procuresses, which is a name given to those who join together man and woman in an unlawful and unscientific way, and yet the true midwife is also the true and only matchmaker. Thetatus, clearly. Socrates, such are the midwives, whose task is a very important one, but not so important as mine, for women do not bring into the world at one time real children, and at another time counterfeits, which are with difficulty distinguished from them. If they did, then the discernment of the true and false birth would be the crowning achievement of the art of midwifery. You would think so? 
Thetatus. Indeed I should. Socrates. Well, my art of midwifery is in most respects like theirs, but differs in that I attend men and not women, and I look after their souls when they are in labor, and not after their bodies, and the triumph of my art is in thoroughly examining whether the thought which the mind of the young man is bringing to the birth is a false idol or a noble and true birth. And like the midwives, I am barren, and the reproach which is often made against me, that I ask questions of others and have not the wit to answer them myself, is very just. The reason is that the God compels me to be a midwife, but forbids me to bring forth. And therefore I am not myself at all wise, nor have I anything to show which is the invention or birth of my own soul. But those who converse with me profit. Some of them appear dull enough at first, but afterwards, as our acquaintance ripens, if the God is gracious to them, they all make astonishing progress, and this in the opinion of others as well as their own. It is quite clear that they had never learned anything from me. The many fine discoveries to which they cling are of their own making. But to me and the God they owe their delivery, and the proof of my words is that many of them in their ignorance, either in their self-conceit despising me, or falling under the influence of others, have gone away too soon and have not only lost the children of whom I had previously delivered them by an ill bringing up, but have stifled whatever else they had in them by evil communications, being fonder of lies and shams than of the truth, and they have at last ended by seeing themselves, as others see them, to be great fools. Aristides the son of Lysimachus, is one of them. And there are many others. The truants often return to me and beg that I would consort with them again. They are ready to go to me on their knees, and then, if my familiar allows, which is not always the case, I receive them, and they begin to grow again. Dire are the pangs which my art is able to arouse and to allay in those who consort with me, just like the pangs of women in childbirth. Night and day, they are full of perplexity and travail, which is even worse than that of the women. So much for them. And there are others, Thetatus, who come to me apparently having nothing in them. And as I know that, they have no need of my art. I coax them into marrying someone, and by the grace of God I can generally tell who is likely to do them good. Many of them I have given away to Prodicus, and many to other inspired sages. I tell you this long story, friend Thetatus, because I suspect, as indeed you seem to think yourself, that you are in labour great with some conception. Come then to me, who am a midwife's son, 
and myself a midwife, and try to answer the questions which I will ask you. And if I abstract and expose your firstborn, because I discover upon inspection that the conception which you have formed is a vain shadow, do not quarrel with me on that account, as the manner of women is, when their first children are taken from them. For I have actually known some who were ready to bite me when I deprived them of a darling folly. They did not perceive that I acted from good will, not knowing that no god is the enemy of man. That was not within the range of their ideas. Neither am I their enemy in all this. But it would be wrong in me to admit falsehood or to stifle the truth. Once more then, Thetatus, I repeat my old question. What is knowledge? And do not say that you cannot tell. But quit yourself like a man, and by the help of God you will be able to tell. Socrates proceeds to determine whether the intellectual babe brought forth by Thetatus is a wind egg or a real and genuine birth. This then is the child, however he may turn out, which you and I have with difficulty brought into the world, and now that he is born, we must run round the hearth with him and see whether he is worth rearing or only a wind egg and a sham. Is he to be reared in any case and not exposed? Or will you bear to see him rejected, and not get into a passion, if I take away your firstborn? The conclusion is, that you have brought forth wind, and that the offspring of your brain are not worth bringing up. And the dialogue ends, as it began, with a reference to the midwife. The office of a midwife, I, like my mother, have received from God she delivered women, and I deliver men, but they must be young and noble and fair. From the writings of Plato, we may gather many details about the status of physicians in his time. It is very evident that the profession was far advanced, and had been progressively developing for a long period before Hippocrates, whom we erroneously, yet with a certain propriety, called the father of medicine. The little by-play between Socrates and Euthydemus suggests an advanced condition of medical literature. Of course, you who have so many books are going in for being a doctor, says Socrates. And then he adds, there are so many books on medicine, you know. As Dyer remarks, Whatever the quality of these books may have been, their number must have been great to give point to this chaff. It may be clearly gathered from the writings of Plato that two sorts of physicians, apart altogether from the quacks and the Esculapian guild, existed in Athens, the private practitioner and the state physician. The latter, though the smaller numerically, represented apparently the most distinguished class. From a reference in one of the dialogues, Gorgias, they evidently 
were elected by public assembly. When the assembly meets to elect a physician, the office was apparently yearly, for in the statesman is the remark, when the year of office has expired, the pilot or physician has to come before a court of review to answer any charges that may be made against him. In the same dialogue occurs the remark, and if anyone who is in a private station has the art to advise one of the public physicians, must he not be called a physician? Apparently, a physician must have been in practice for some time, and attained great eminence, before he was deemed worthy of the post of state physician. If you and I were physicians, and were advising one another that we were competent to practice as state physicians, should I not ask you, and would you not ask me? Well, but how about Socrates himself? Has he good health? And was anyone else ever known to be cured by him, whether slave or free man? A reference to the two sorts of doctors is also found in the Republic. Now you know that when patients do not require medicine, but have only to be put under a regimen, the inferior sort of practitioner is deemed to be good enough. But when medicine has to be given, then the doctor should be more of a man. The office of state physician was in existence fully two generations before this time, for Democedes held this post at Athens in the second half of the sixth century, at a salary of four hundred and six pounds, and very much as a modern professor might be. He was seduced away by the offer of a great increase in salary by Polycrates, the tyrant of Samos. It is evident, too, from the laws, that the doctors had assistants, often among the slaves. For of doctors, as I may remind you, some have a gentler, others a ruder method of cure. And as children ask the doctor to be gentle with them, so we will ask the legislator to cure our disorders with the gentlest remedies. What I mean to say is that besides doctors, there are doctors' servants who are also styled doctors. Very true. And whether they are slaves or free men makes no difference. They acquire their knowledge of medicine by obeying and observing their masters, empirically and not according to the natural way of learning, as the manner of free men is, who have learned scientifically themselves the art which they impart scientifically to their pupils. You are aware that there are these two classes of doctors? To be sure. And did you ever observe that there are two classes of patients in states, slaves and freemen, and the slave doctors run about and cure the slaves, or wait for them in the dispensaries? Practitioners of this sort never talk to their patients individually, or let them talk about their own individual complaints. The slave doctor prescribes what mere experience suggests, as if he had exact knowledge and when he has given his orders, like a tyrant, he rushes off with equal assurance to some other servant who is ill, and so he relieves the master of the house of the care of his invalid slaves, 
but the other doctor who is a freeman attends and practices upon free men and he carries his inquiries far back and goes into the nature of the disorder he enters into discourse with the patient and with his friends and is at once getting information from the sick man and also instructing him as far as he is able and he will not prescribe for him until he has first convinced him at last when he has brought the patient more and more under his persuasive influences and set him on the road to health he attempts to effect a cure now which is the better way of proceeding in a physician and in a trainer is he the better who accomplishes his ends in a double way or he who works in one way and that the ruder and inferior this idea of first convincing a patient by argument is also mentioned in the gorgias and would appear indeed to have furnished occupation for some of the numerous sophists of that period gorgias lauding the virtues of rhetoric and claiming that she holds under her sway all the inferior art says let me offer you a striking example of this on several occasions i have been with my brother herodicus or some other physician to see one of his patients who would not allow the physician to give him medicine or apply the knife or hot iron to him and i have persuaded him to do for me what he would not do for the physician just by the use of rhetoric and i say that if a rhetorician and a physician were to go to any city and had there to argue in the ecclesia or any other assembly as to which of them should be elected state physician the physician would have no chance but he who could speak would be chosen if he wished in another place laws plato satirizes this custom for of this you may be very sure that if one of those empirical physicians who practice medicine without science were to come upon the gentleman physician talking to his gentleman patient and using the language almost of philosophy beginning at the beginning of the disease and discoursing about the whole nature of the body he would burst into a hearty laugh he would say what most of those who are called doctors always have at their tongue's end foolish fellow he would say you are not healing the sick man but you are educating him and he does not want to be made a doctor but to get well of the personal qualifications of the physician not much is said but in the republic there is an original and to us not very agreeable idea now the most skilful physicians are those who from their youth upwards have combined with a knowledge of their art the greatest experience of disease they had better not be in robust health and should have had all manner of diseases in their own person for the body as i conceive is not the instrument with which they cure the body in that case we could not allow them ever to be or to have been sickly but they cure the body with the mind and the mind which has become and is sick 
can cure nothing. Some idea of the estimate which Plato put on the physician may be gathered from the mystical account in the Phaedrus of the nature of the soul and of life in the upper world. We are but animated failures, the residua of the souls above, which have attained a vision of truth, but have fallen. Hence, beneath the double load of forgetfulness and vice, there are nine grades of human existence into which these souls may pass, from that of a philosopher or artist to that of a tyrant. The physician or lover of gymnastic toils comes in the fourth class. But if Plato assigns the physician a place in the middle tier in his mystery, he welcomes him socially into the most select and aristocratic circle of Athens. In that most festive of all festal occasions, at the house of Agathon, described in the symposium, Eryximachus, a physician, and the son of one, is a chief speaker, and in his praise of love says, From medicine I will begin, that I may do honour to my art. We find him too on the side of temperance and sobriety. The weak heads like myself, Aristodemus, Phaedrus, and others who never can drink, are fortunate in finding that the stronger ones are not in a drinking mood. I do not include Socrates, who is able either to drink or to abstain, and will not mind whichever we do. Well, as none of the company seem disposed to drink much, I may be forgiven for saying, as a physician, that drinking deep is a bad practice, which I never follow, if I can help, and certainly do not recommend to another. Least of all, to anyone who still feels the effect of yesterday's carouse. The prescriptions for hiccup, given by Eryximachus, give verisimilitude to the dialogue. When the turn of Aristophanes came, he had eaten too much and had the hiccup, and he said to Eryximachus, You ought either to stop my hiccup or speak in my turn. Eryximachus recommended him to hold his breath, or if that failed, to gargle with a little water, and if the hiccup still continued, to tickle his nose with something and sneeze, adding, If you sneeze once or twice, even the most violent hiccup is sure to go. Upon the medical symptoms narrated in that memorable scene, unparalleled in literature, after Socrates had drank the poison in prison, it is unnecessary to dwell. But I may refer to one aspect, as indicating the reverence felt for the representative of the great healer, denied his wish by the warning of the jailer, who says that there is only sufficient poison to offer a libation to a god. Socrates' dying words were, Crito, we owe a cock to Esculapius. The meaning of this solemnly smiling farewell of Socrates would seem to be, according to Dyer, that to Esculapius, a god who always is prescribing potions 
and whose power is manifest in their effects, was due that most welcome and sovereign remedy which cured all the pains and ended all the woes of Socrates, the hemlock, which cured him of life which is death, and gave him the glorious realities of hereafter. For this great boon of awakening into real life, Socrates owed Esculapius a thank-offering. This offering of a cock to Esculapius was plainly intended for him as the awakener of the dead to life everlasting. And permit me to conclude this already too long account with the eulogium of Professor Jowett, words worthy of the master, worthy of his great interpreter to this generation. More than two thousand two hundred years have passed away since he returned to the place of Apollo and the Muses. Yet the echo of his words continues to be heard among men. Because of all philosophers he has the most melodious voice. He is the inspired prophet or teacher who can never die, the only one in whom the outward form adequately represents the fair soul within, in whom the thoughts of all who went before him are reflected, and of all who come after him are partly anticipated. Other teachers of philosophy are dried up and withered. After a few centuries they have become dust, but he is fresh and blooming, and is always begetting new ideas in the minds of men. They are one-sided and abstract, but he has many sides of wisdom. Nor is he always consistent with himself, because he is always moving onward, and knows that there are many more things in philosophy than can be expressed in words, and that truth is greater than consistency. He who approaches him in the most reverent spirit shall reap most of the fruits of his wisdom. He who reads him by the light of ancient commentators will have the least understanding of him. We may see him with the eye of the mind in the groves of the academy, or on the banks of the Ilissus, or on the streets of Athens alone or walking with Socrates, full of these thoughts which have since become the common possession of mankind. Or we may compare him to a statue hid away in some temple of Zeus or Apollo, no longer existing on earth, a statue which has a look as of the God himself. Or we may once more imagine him following in another state of being the great company of heaven which he beheld of old in a vision so partly trifling but with a degree of seriousness we linger around the memory of a world which has passed away end of chapter four physic and physicians recording by Luke Sartor, Berkeley, California.